I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima and Hi, I'm Tova Kinooka and I'm here in Yokohama. So it's, we have a lot of great topics today. Uh, I, I've been doing a lot of guiding. I haven't, I've for years been teaching and training guides. And then recently when the borders opened this year, I thought, well, why not try it? Because it really informs a lot of my consulting work when I talk to businesses and destinations about what international travelers think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been out and I've been just loving all the red maple everywhere. Uh, this is actually in my garden, and I went to Miyajima Island. There's beautiful red maple leaves everywhere now.、Um, and I always forget that this time of year, spring, we're sad the cherry blossoms are gone, but we do have these beautiful red maples coming out all over Japan. Have you, you yeah, seen them、yeah. around your area too, t o I, I have a bit, yes. I mean, it's just an amazing time of year, isn't it? And it always feels kind of very. Optimistic, I think,、um, after the sort of cold and bare winter to, to see all the, the first the blossom and, and then the maples and the new leaves coming out.、Um, of course, climate change is、uh, impacting things,、uh, you know, coming out perhaps earlier or later than they normally would.、Um, so it's been interesting to kind of observe that as well.、Um, and yeah, slightly concerning, well, really concerning about the long term impact on.、Um, On the, the rhythms and the whole cycle、um, for all the interconnected species. But it is absolutely beautiful, I have to say. And really great that tourists are coming back to Japan now and are able to come and enjoy this. We've seen certainly a lot around Yokohama and Tokyo as well, out enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. And、uh, trying to do, of course, sustainable tourism as a guide.、Um, and I've noticed a very popular souvenir that everybody's looking for is the wooden masu. Uh, the sake cups, the wooden sake cups. And、uh, I've taken them to a few local sake shops and they're sold out. So they're using them as great lightweight souvenirs. So stock up on your sake cups, your wooden masu, locally made, if you want to appeal to international tourists. So that was a really nice, nice find. Yep, yep, very much. Now, you may have seen later、uh, cherry blossoms because you were up at north、uh, for a seminar with young leaders on、yes. ethical leadership. You want to tell us about this? Yep. So I think I mentioned this sort of it was as a, something that was coming up、uh, when we spoke last month. So this was、um, a, a camp, one week camp for young leaders aged sort of 15 to 18.、Um, and we went to Kamaishi in Iwate Prefecture, which is one of the、um, many towns, unfortunately, along that coastline that was absolutely decimated by the tsunami back in 2011.、Um, and they've rebuilt Um, the village, the, the, the area where we were, which、um, is called Nebama Bay, which is just outside Kamaishi, sort of main town.、Um, and the, the entire village there was absolutely flattened. It was you know, really, really horrendous.、Um, but they relocated the whole village further up the hill.、Um, and the, it was really interesting to go there for the camp and A, sort of see how they've rebuilt, but also hearing the.、Um, the The thinking behind how they've rebuilt. So, the, the village, for example, that they relocated further up the hill, they put the community center right in the middle. 
of the village. And then the first sort of ring of houses around that community centre are the elderly people. So that A, they're near the community centre for things, it's their social hub, there are things going on there. But it also means that any of the other sort of more sort of younger, more able, perhaps villagers who live further out around the edge can keep an eye on them. So they're always around. People see, you know, check in to see that they're okay. Um, so it's been built um, very consciously to think about who's in this community, what are their needs, um, and you know, how do we position this so that it, it works well for everyone. So that was really interesting to see. Um, and the camp itself, the young leaders, there were, I think, about 30 um, young leaders you can see there uh, from mostly from around Japan, but ranging from Okinawa up to um, Hokkaido. They were from all over. There were about five or six um, local high school kids from Kamaishi. Um, and there were a few from outside as well. So I think there was a, a young lad from uh, France, one from Spain, uh, a girl from New Zealand, um, a boy who was half Japanese, but from the US. Um, and it was so nice to see them come together and, you know, a little bit shy at the beginning on the first night, they were a bit quiet, but actually, you know, they were then put into to four smaller groups and they kind of rotated around during the week um, through different workshops. And we were doing things like ethical leadership, which was the one I was doing. Um, but then they were doing things like first aid, um, water rescue, Atlantic Pacific, the, the company that or the MPO, sorry, that runs it, they do training on water safety and rescue. Um, and so they were, you can see the boats down at the bottom there um, with Robin Jenkins, the leader there, doing a session on um, water rescue and uh, water safety. Then they did a session on um, ocean plastics with a local community group that, uh, you know, are working on this and have a machine that can recycle plastics to make, you know, different products. And so they were talking through that and, you know, the kids were having a go at it. Um, and then they were also having um, sessions with the, the locals who had been through the whole experience of the tsunami and uh, talking about disaster preparedness, disaster resilience. Um, and so some really deep topics, but done in a, just a, a really accessible and interesting way. Um, and my daughter, actually, who's 16, took uh, part in the whole camp and it, it blew her mind. It was wonderful. Um, so that really, really great. great there. Yeah. And the, the youth, these are our future. So yeah. we, we have to train them. We have to educate them. And yeah. that's that's one other thing that a lot of visitors are really impressed by is mm. uh, when we go through Peace Park in Hiroshima and I talk about how my kids went through Japanese school and they have peace education all over mm -hmm. Japan and lots of kids around Japan. They learn about Sadako Sasaki and what happened 10 years after the bomb and how she mm. got radiation sickness. All her friends rallied around. They were folding the Orizuru cranes. And then now that's become a symbol of mm. Hiroshima. But it really it connects with that idea of, of education and talking yeah. about peace as a part of your curriculum. Mm -hmm. And they also always comment on how polite and kind Japanese people are. And there's so many great stories about being led 
to where you're asking to go to, uh, to make sure that you get there and that level yeah. of kindness, you know? Mm -hmm. And then they ask me, how are Japanese people so kind? How are they so, you know, where does this come from? And I, I give examples also connected to education and mm -hmm. how this is the norm in Japanese schools. And these are the standards that most of them are taught through school mm -hmm. and that social, uh, building of culture through that way. So yeah. uh, we're doing something right in Japan, yes. you know, to have so many visitors just blown away yeah. uh, by these things, which is wonderful to see. Well, I think, you know, it comes back to community, doesn't it? Thinking about Nibama Bay and, and how they design that community to, to really consciously think of everyone's needs. And, you know, that that sort of in the schools as well, there's very much a, a system of the, the older kids looking out for and taking care of the younger kids. And particularly, you know, the first years when they, they begin, you know, I remember my son last year, uh, older kids were assigned to come and pick him up. Um, right at the front door and walk with him for the first sort of week or two so that he could sort of get used to to doing that journey. Um, so it, it's there are some really great aspects, which I think actually can really positively impact sustainability work as well, because if you can tap into that community sort of um, caring and supportive mindset, I think, and realize that this affects us all and therefore we all need to be involved in it. That's a really, really powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, an event that I went to as well recently uh, was the Setouchi 7. So this area of Japan uh, around Hiroshima, we have seven prefectures all around the Setouchi, the Setunaikai. And uh, Alex Kerr, who you can see here, he was the keynote speaker. And he did a great talk about um, the kind of worrying trends that we're seeing in Japan. A lot of cities are cutting down their trees, mm -hmm. for example, yes. and then gave examples like in New York and Paris and other big city centers where they're adding more trees along the roadways, whereas mm -hmm. Japan seems to be taking them away. So, you know, and then Rochelle Kopp has do, been mm -hmm. doing that Jingu Gaian, Save the Trees of Jingu Gaian. So this is kind of a worrying trend. But on the yeah. other side, he gave so many wonderful examples about uh, restoring and renovating old traditional houses into guest houses and how mm -hmm. that has so much tourism appeal. So that was such a great uh, keynote speak from speech from him. And then we heard from all the governors of all the seven prefectures about what they are trying to do to appeal to international tourists. And I was so excited to hear from Tokushima, they featured Kamikatsu and what Ooh, they're doing with zero waste. Yep. I was so excited. Yeah. I don't know if anybody else was, but I was like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> and then Hyoga Prefecture was yeah. talking about all the ways that they are doing uh, new developments in connection with SDGs. Like mm. not just using the SDG mark, but connecting it directly yeah. with actions that they're taking. And that governor came around to all our tables and he was uh, sharing an eco sake, so a sustainable branded sake huh. from Hyogo. So that just impressed me so much. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so nice to see that leadership is taking that bold step forward to really show how they're taking actions, yeah. not just talking about it, how they're putting it into action. So that was great. Yeah, that, that's the big key, right? Moving from just all the talk and the putting your SDG badges out there to actually doing something. So that, that's great to hear.
Yeah. Now you were at an interesting talk about diversity. Uh, Moriaki Kida, can you tell us about this? Yeah, so um, Mori, as he likes to be called, um, is, as you can see, chairperson and CEO of EY Japan. So, And he's one of the few openly gay um, senior leaders, senior corporate leaders in Japan. Um, oh, sorry, <laughs> the, the recycling thing outside for the cans and bottles has just arrived. So if there's noise in the background, that's why. <laughs> recycling, good stuff. Recycling, um, yes. So, yes, Maurice-san was the keynote speaker at this supplier diversity event, which was a, a collaboration between the American Chamber of Commerce, the British Chamber, the Swedish Chamber, the Swiss Chamber, I believe, um, and uh, Google Japan as well. And um, so we were hosted at Google's office in Shibuya, which is really quite amazing. Um, and you can see we've got a, a panel there as well. So, um, you know, a range of really brilliant people, including my good friend Jackie Steele there, Lauren Fikes, who's a familiar face for many as well. And we were looking at um, how the... Um, the large corporations in particular can really support minority-led businesses by consciously, you know, looking for them and choosing them um, when they are making their supplier choices. Because for a lot of these, you know, sort of minority-led businesses, they're often smaller businesses, and it's really hard to to get on the radar of you know the um the big organizations and so it was sort of looking at what are the challenges around that what are the challenges as well for these minority-led businesses and even just starting up so we looked at um well they were talking about topics such as you know getting bank loans and finance um and we heard that um you know, in Japan particularly, and I think you know the same goes for many countries, it's much harder for minority-led businesses, particularly by women, particularly for people of color, or for women of color even more so, to actually get funding in the first place to start up a business, which is absolutely ridiculous, right? They're no less capable than anybody else. Um, but there are sort of uh, institutional hurdles there. Um, it, it's very difficult to, to get the right paperwork, particularly as a woman in Japan, if you're not seen as the head of the household, to actually go and get a, a loan to start a business. Um, so they were looking at, um, you know, sort of what networks are out there to support this. Um, and uh, the WeConnect um, platform was one that was represented there and talking about how that's a, a platform for um, women-led businesses and, and how it can sort of help advise them on where they can find funding, where they can get advice on building the business and so on. So it was a, a yeah, really, really interesting discussion there. Yeah, so important. Uh, mm. Having better diversity and inclusion in your management system yeah. uh, helps everyone, you know, then you can make policies that everyone can benefit from. It's yeah. not just about helping women or including uh, different people into your workplace. It's also it supports community and diversity of ideas, yeah. uh, creativity. It makes your business more healthy, more economically viable as well. So, mm -hmm. so many exactly. wins there. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, uh, we had a comment from Christina Recycling. Yay! <laughs> Thanks for joining Christina yeah. from Facebook. Awesome. And that brings me to my next topic, a new beauty product I have just discovered. And this is actually an Australian brand called mm -hmm. Aesop. And ah, yes. uh, I discovered it in Hiroshima and I was like, wait, 
those packages are not plastic. So I found my way into the shop. Um, all the containers are glass, so you can recycle them in Japan. We have a high rate of recycling in Japan for glass. Um, the lids, unfortunately, are plastic, um, but you can reuse them uh, mm -hmm. every time you buy a new one. So that's a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, much better than just single-use plastic that goes into the bin and cannot be recycled. Yeah. Um, and I also went back to Muji. Now, oh, we right. have the flagship store uh, for Muji here in Hiroshima, and I reviewed it last year, and so it's been mm -hmm. a year uh, since I first went and saw when they opened and had these new ideas, and I actually, uh, the first time I tried taking my own bottle and refilling it uh, for their beauty products, and I tried the shampoo this time. It was very straightforward. Uh, you just have to take a clean container. You could take any container that you mm -hmm. like. Uh, they weigh it beforehand, they fill it with your product, and they weigh it after, and you pay for how much product you oh, have, yeah. which mm -hmm. you don't want to buy the plastic container anyway. Mm -hmm. You want the product, right? And so it was it was perfect for me. I was so happy to get back and be able to try this, uh, something I've been wanting to do for a year. Yeah. And I was also reminded of this great initiative. They have these water refill stations all around mm -hmm. the shop. So they have a really big uh, area where they're taking up uh, for different parts of the Muji store for clothing, furniture, everything. Mm -hmm. But they have these on opposite sides and you are encouraged to refill for free. Brilliant. Or mm -hmm. you can buy these little bottles if you forgot your own and you can uh, use it. I think it's 100 yen to buy the bottle. You use it and then you can just bring it back and they will wash and reuse them. Or you can bring it back and keep reusing and refill for free. And it seems like such a no-brainer, right? Mm, yeah. We have yeah. water refill stations. But still in Japan, and this is definitely mm. something that the international visitors are also saying, where can I refill my bottle? Yeah. Even if they buy one bottle from the vending machine, they don't want to keep buying bottles. Mm. They're like, I bought a bottle of water. Where can I refill it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it makes sense economically. It makes sense for your health to stay mm -hmm. hydrated. But it's so difficult as, as you travel around Japan to refill bottles. And it really shouldn't be. It should be easy. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that, that's where we need things like the, the MyMizu app, right? That, that can help you locate your, your nearest um, refill station. Um, so uh, if you don't have that already, go, go and search for uh, on the app store uh, yes. for Mymizu and that, that'll definitely help you in Japan. And then you yeah, can use and that's MyMizu people. <laughs> yeah, MyMizu app, yeah. check it out. And we'll put the, the link below. Definitely, yes. that's something we, we are, yeah. uh, we are Tova and I are big fans of for sure. <laughs> um, now, Christina says they're becoming more common in the US too. So places Good. you can refill. That's wonderful to hear, yeah. Christina. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, I was also, uh, I'm a big fan of Riki Okanda, who goes by Paprika Girl. And I've interviewed her a few times on my show. Uh, she's a kimono expert. She also just loves using kimono in her daily life mm -hmm. uh, since she came to Japan and been gifted some kimonos. And she was recently on NHK, a program uh, following uh, Isabella... Isabella Bird, is it? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yes, Isabella Bird, who uh, came in the 1800s, 19th century, and she was traveling around Japan. She was one of the first travelers to come to Japan. Mm -hmm. And so this is an NHK show uh, following that journey. And mm -hmm. uh, Riki Okanda is, is the one who's like the, doing the commentary and the narration of the show. And it's, it's just so lovely to see that journey from Yokohama, where you are, Tova. Yes, yeah all the way up to Nikko, and they stop at some very sustainable businesses along the way. So mm -hmm. they see an old book bookcase, a kiritansu being refurbished mm -hmm. uh, by an expert craftsperson. They uh, ride in a rickshaw. Now, this is something that I've been seeing in Miyajima in our sightseeing places, and I know that you have in Yokohama as well. And yeah. I didn't realize until I was talking to the rickshaw driver that it actually originated in Japan, that <laughs> these were created after the in the Edo period and yeah. they were used by everyone. It wasn't just a high quality, you know, you know, high level of society people. Everybody was using it because it was cheaper than the horse and carriage. Yes. Yes. And but one of the problems was that mm. people burnt out in, within five years. It wasn't a job that they could do for a long yeah. time. Yeah. And when I was talking to the rickshaw driver and the owner in Miyajima, he was saying the same thing. We can't mm. really keep staff doing it for a long time. It's really yeah. hard. Mm. So one of the things that he's talking to the makers, they still make these in Japan mm -hmm. and the makers, he's trying to help them innovate to add an electric assist, you know, oh, like you have on the bicycles. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. So they're thinking of adding electric assist to the rickshaws so that they don't have to work as mm -hmm. hard mm -hmm. and maybe could even take more people. It's yeah. one or two people. Uh, there's some steep slopes in Miyajima yes. and other areas. So you really see these guys struggling up, but also struggling down because yeah. there's no brakes and they have to break with their legs. Yeah. Um, and they've got big muscles. But an electric assist would really open it up to more people mm -hmm. to try. Yeah. That's yeah, really interesting. We see quite a lot of those around um, Kamakura, particularly near near here. Um, and often, they, I, I think the the young guys we see doing it are perhaps students doing it as a, a sort of a job to keep themselves going while they're going through, um, you know, university or whatever. Um, but it, it's hard work, right? So that sounds like a, a good idea. Yeah, and so I often suggest it uh, to visitors who have difficulty walking. Yes. And uh, because when you go to Miyajima Island, you have to walk a lot. There's a lot of walking involved. Uh, visitors are always commenting on how many steps they're doing. They're doing an average of between 15 and 20,000 steps a day, which okay. is a lot. But when you come to Japan, be prepared to walk or <laughs> take a rickshaw. And rickshaws, zero emissions, very sustainable transportation, yep. especially now that I know that the rickshaws are still being made in Japan. Mm. Um, it's a really nice way to get along you, around. You don't have the engine noise or anything. Yeah, yeah, no, very yeah. nice, great. Have you ever tried it? I haven't tried it, no, um, but certainly we, we do see quite a lot of them around um, some parts of Yokohama, but particularly in um, uh, around the sort of Kamakura area, they're really popular there. So it's yeah. nice to well, hear the, that, you know, that the guy in Miyajima, he said he's he's got one in Kamakura and other uh, sightseeing areas. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. it's about 4,500 per hour. So okay. you get a lot of value from an yes, hour. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> what a nice way to, to, to look around. Definitely. Uh, so my book recommendation for today would be Isabella Bird's Unbeaten Tracks in Japan, which I've just ordered. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading her insights. Uh, mm -hmm. So in the NHK uh, video, which I'll share the link below, um, they give some quotes from her book. And it's a book filled with letters that she wrote to family and friends back in the UK. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And uh, a lot of her insights are still very relevant today, mm -hmm. right? About yeah. how she was so charmed by staying in a Japanese inn. Mm -hmm. how she loved seeing Mount, Mount Fuji and then it disappeared. It often <laughs> moved behind clouds. And I think we yeah. still have that experience, right? Very much, yes. How, how many people say, oh, I didn't see Mount Fuji, but maybe next time when I'm going back to Tokyo, right? She's very shy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Tova, uh, before we started, you were talking about uh, AI and how we need to mm -hmm. have consideration of energy use. Can you tell us about that? Yes, well, this is something um, I want to do a lot more um, research into, actually, because I think it's a really important area because very often, particularly in, you know, conversations around um, sustainability and, you know, inclusivity in organizations as well, more and more we're hearing about um, technological solutions, right? And and AI, chat GPT, I mean, everyone's talking about that at the moment. And they have a lot of really great applications and, you know, can be an extremely positive um, development. However, there are hidden costs here, hidden impacts on both environment and on human rights as well. Um, so you know, I've been reading and hearing a few things recently around the, um, the energy consumption, for example, required for powering AI, say, you know, so when you're doing these searches, it's nice and quick and easy, but people aren't thinking about the, the energy consumption of that. And then the, these data centers that are required to, to power um, all the technology that we're using are A, absolutely massive and B, produce a huge amount of heat. Um, and I know that, you know, some of them have had to be built in in very you know, uh, cold parts of the, the world, you've got them, them sort of in Alaska, for example, because the, you know, it's such a, an issue to try and keep these massive data centers um, cool. And there, there was an interesting example from uh, Devon, which is my, my hometown in the UK or my home prefecture in the UK, um, where they have a, a, a local um, company that uh, is creating data centers, sort of small data centers, has installed one in underneath a local swimming pool. And they're using the heat from that data center to heat the pool, which has massively reduced the energy consumption um, for the swimming pool, which is a wonderful thing. And it's a, an efficient you know, way to get rid of the, the heat for the, the data center. So that's an interesting development. And I wonder if we're going to see more things like that. But I think this is something that a lot more work needs to be done on understanding, you know, yes, technological solutions can be great, but what are the actual costs of that energy. Is that energy clean in the first place? Where's it coming from? How much are we using? Um, and also, you know, when we're looking at the actual devices themselves, you know, whether that's smartphones, tablets, you know, whatever it is we're using, 
precious minerals and you know um, metals that are used and required in those are often mined in horrendous conditions um, in very poor parts of the world. Um, you know, it, it's a massive human rights issue there, and the environmental cost of those often the the way that they're they're mined, for example, cobalt and things like this. You know, there are horrendous um, toxic sludge that is produced in the process that you know is having a, a really bad environmental impact as well so i think we we don't there's not a lot of visibility on this issue yet a lot not a lot of understanding on it yet and it's something we need to look into a lot more carefully before we we jump into saying yep these are sustainable solutions and you know isn't it all wonderful so yes and we need to understand more Absolutely. And having that uh, idea going in on a new idea with the idea of circularity. Yes. Uh, where does every part that we need, where does it come from? What happens okay. as we're using it? Like you're talking about harvesting mm -hmm. the energy that's created, the heat, yeah. as reusing that if possible. And then what happens at the end of life? Can we recycle? Mm -hmm. Can we reuse those elements, um, especially the rare minerals, which are yes. so heavily in demand right now? Yeah, That was a really encouraging thing when I did the trip to Fukushima for the HOPE tour, and I'm writing mm -hmm. up the day two now. Um, we visited renewable energy farms and saw mm -hmm. all the wind turbines everywhere, right? Yeah. And uh, Fukushima area is very exciting that they're actually thinking about how they can create an infrastructure for the next stage. After mm. renew renewable energy is at end of life, yeah. solar panels, wind turbines, yeah. how can they create a recycling or reuse center mm -hmm. there, which nobody else is doing yet. That's brilliant. So they're yeah. really thinking like next level, next stage. Mm -hmm. How can we create something very needed, which nobody seems to be thinking of right now? Yes. And yeah. I just, I love that forward thinking idea. We need yeah. more of that, right? We do. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that we're always banging on about in all our client work is what we call ecosystem thinking, right? So not looking at something in isolation, but looking at, you know, the, the whole spectrum of the life cycle of something, but also the, you know, the way it's um, interconnected to to planet, to people, to society. What are all the, the you know, the impacts there, both negative and positive, that are often not considered. So that, that I think, is a great example of that and really thinking further ahead and how can these be reused so clean energy is great but you know we need to think about the the bigger picture too and absolutely connecting back to what you were talking about about educating and training youth yes uh, getting uh funding for young entrepreneurs to get involved with these forward-thinking projects you know these are all it's it's really complicated and complex yeah. and has many moving parts um but these are solutions we already know about so yep. let's start applying them, right? Yes. Yep. It's a good start. Awesome. Well, that is our 30 minutes, Toba. It always goes so fast. Uh, <laughs> so wonderful talking to you again. And we'll Likewise. catch up again next month. Yep. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Take care. Have a great day. Anyone ever seen a mess?
some of us don't mind crying in public some of us are just dying to be missed